So this industry does a lot to prepare. They plan and exercise uh, all year round. And when incidents happen, they uh, look to learn from each of the incidents, uh, do what's called a hot wash or an after action, uh, learn the lessons and then apply them going forward. Welcome to Electric Perspectives, a podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Real. Over the past year, the electric power industry confronted historic hurricanes, devastating wildfires, tornadoes, a powerful derecho, and a record-breaking October ice storm, not to mention a global pandemic. Each storm and each natural disaster was unique and created new challenges, and we saw the electric power industry working together more closely than ever before to safely restore power to customers. June 1st kicks off the official start of hurricane season, so we're joined today by Scott Aronson, EEI's Vice President of Security and Preparedness, to talk a bit about how electric companies have been preparing for this new hurricane season and what customers can be doing now to prepare for the possibility of power outages. Scott, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here with you. So safety is the top priority for the electric power industry. So how are electric companies able to keep their workers safe while restoring power after all of these major storms that hit during the global pandemic? Yeah, so safety, first of all, I appreciate the question. Safety really is the number one priority uh, when we go out to do these restorations. Uh, This is critical infrastructure that is critical to the health and safety safety of the communities that we serve. Um, But it's also infrastructure that, uh, if not uh, respected, can kill the people who are out doing this work. And so uh, as crews go out in really dangerous conditions following a storm, with uh, down power lines and other debris and dangerous uh, uh, environments, they really do have to make sure that safety is that number one priority. Uh, You couple that with a pandemic and uh, having thousands of people responding to a storm in close quarters, uh, and you're adding a whole other threat to the safety and well-being of the crews that are out there uh, doing work for the community. So this uh, industry does a lot to prepare. Uh, They plan and exercise uh, all year round. And when incidents happen, they uh, look to learn from each of the incidents, uh, do what's called a hot wash or an after action, uh, learn the lessons and then apply them going forward. And it's just this cycle of rinsing and repeating. Uh, Unfortunately, through the last uh, few years, we've had an awful lot of practice, uh, but with that practice comes uh, getting better at the the response. And, And then with respect to the pandemic specifically, the industry came together in an unprecedented way. Uh, to learn from each other, to share practices and wisdom about the best ways to uh, mitigate risk from COVID-19, everything from physical distancing to uh, uh, mask wearing, uh, now to vaccination. Uh, And we've been sharing those lessons through something known as the ESCC, or Electric Sector Coordinating Council, Pandemic Resource Guide. Uh, And that has been shared across the sector with other sectors and has even been translated into a few languages as we all learn uh, the particular peculiarities of responding to uh, storms and other natural hazards in the midst of a once in a century global pandemic. So is that guide like a brochure or is that a a more more detailed document? 
So it started as a brochure. It was about a six-page document with uh, just some basic uh, some, some basic suggestions about how you prepare for uh, response in a pandemic. It has grown to about 150 pages. Uh, it is on version 10. It has been iterated on uh, over the course of the last year, and it has benefited from literally hundreds of people all across the sector, not just EEI's members, the investor-owned electric companies, but the cooperatives and municipals have contributed to this document. Uh, and it really has gone a long way to ensuring that those thousands of workers that are out in the field, making sure that the electricity can keep flowing, uh, making sure that they uh, are benefiting from the most uh, recent recommended practices. And I want to be very careful with that word. You'll notice I did not say best practices. We don't know what the best practices are. We're sort of doing this as we go along, but we are sharing wisdom and we are sharing recommended practices uh, as uh, we learn from each of these incidents that have happened uh, during the last uh, very eventful year. So ensuring a safe and efficient restoration takes a lot of coordination across the industry and with a lot of government partners. Can you talk a bit about the different organizations that are involved in a major response and how do you know who to talk to from all these organizations? Yeah, the first thing I'll say is you, the worst thing you can do is exchange business cards on the tarmac, right? So we need to know all of these critical uh uh, partners well before an incident happens. And I could go through the alphabet soup of the different organizations that are important to successful power restoration. Uh, I already mentioned the ESCC, that's the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council, which is a CEO body uh, representing all segments of the sector that does exactly what it says, coordinates the electricity sector on all sorts of threats, uh, whether acts of war or acts of God. So cyber and physical security to storms and wildfires and you know, even pandemics and civil unrest and, and other things that, that have happened over the course of the last year. Uh, government partners are, of course, really important. So the Department of Energy is our sector specific agency, uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and FEMA, uh, which is uh, within DHS, of course, is an important partner. States. At the end of the day, states are where the consequences are. And so state emergency operations centers, state governors uh, are critical uh, partners. In addition to working with the states, we're also working with state policymakers and regulators in particular. We work with them before, during, and after storms, before you're looking to prepare and make sure that we are investing in more resilient infrastructure. During an event, we need to make sure that we are keeping communities, policymakers, and our regulatory community completely informed about what is happening in their own backyards. And after, we need to learn lessons from the incidents and uh, improve how we invest in the grid going forward. Uh, and then individual companies work with their local communities to understand where the most uh, high priority uh, customers might be, things like hospitals and first responders. Uh, so that we can make sure that we are taking care of those sites uh, and then the rest of the community and, and get uh, commerce and uh, uh, commerce flowing again and, and get uh, people back to uh, uh, having power and, and being able to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Were there any surprising lessons that were learned during the pandemic that might carry forward into future responses? 
Yeah, so a couple of things about the last year. Um, I've mentioned the ESCC resource guide and, and the recommended practices that it created. Uh, some of those were because we brought tiger teams of really smart people together to look over the horizon and anticipate what might happen. Uh, things like impacts to our supply chain, things like uh, keeping uh, really critical employees, uh, you know, those who work in uh, operation centers, those who work in generation facilities, to make sure that they were able to continue to do their work uh, even while the rest of the economy was shutting down. Um, we descent, you know, then looking at things like mutual assistance responses in case there's a hurricane. And yes, there were a few hurricanes last year and a few other uh, natural uh, hazards, uh, making sure that we were ready to respond even with the pandemic going on. One of the more interesting findings uh, was that uh, uh, decentralizing staging sites. So normally staging sites are these sort of areas where thousands of people may congregate and they pick up the work for the day and they uh, their work packages for the day and material and equipment that they may need to uh, use. Uh, they get safety briefings and things like that. Well, putting thousands of people in a really small area during a pandemic is probably not a great idea. So what can we do to um, uh, keep, uh, you know, prevent having that sort of a scenario? Uh, and so decentralizing staging sites was the answer where you'd have a couple of hundred people at a lay down yard picking up their equipment and material. Uh, things like safety briefings were done virtually using uh, things like YouTube and uh, Teams and Zoom and everything else. Uh, and what we found actually is there were efficiencies in having the lay down yards decentralized, having the equipment and material and people closer to the work uh, proved to create some efficiencies. So uh, I, I think that was a great lesson out of the last year. The other lesson out of the last year is that just-in-time supply chains uh, are terrific for efficiency. They are not terrific for resilience. And so everything from uh, the things we needed for the pandemic, whether it was you know, hand sanitizer or uh, you know, N95 masks, uh, all the way to fuel for generation and everything in between, that was critical to our ability to operate. That was critical to our ability to keep uh, the lights on. It was critical to our ability uh, to restore power after an incident. And so understanding the value of warehousing some of this material earlier, understanding that uh, our critical suppliers are not just critical to their communities because they're big, uh, they're, they're big employers, but also critical to critical infrastructure uh, and being able to send that signal to states and governors and other policymakers that we needed to treat those people who make cross arms and bolts for uh, the energy grid, making sure that they know that's not just making cross arms and bolts, that's gonna be something that if there is an incident, we're going to need those uh, those materials as quickly as possible. So a lot of understanding what is uh, happening in the supply chain and a lot of value to decentralization of some of our staging areas uh, were some of the really interesting findings uh, from uh, all of the lessons that we learned over the past year. So Hurricane Laura in particular was one of the strongest hurricanes to make landfall in recent memory. Could you talk a little bit about the type of damage that we saw and how the industry worked together to restore power to customers? Yeah, Hurricane Laura was uh, particularly catastrophic. And for those who don't remember, that is the one uh, that hit the Gulf Coast uh, a little bit uh, west of New Orleans. Uh, and it truly flattened the transmission system of uh, Entergy, uh, who operates in Southern Louisiana, among other places. Given the nature of that uh, of that storm, uh, for those who don't fully understand, so the way that the energy grid's broken up, you have generation, transmission, and distribution. Generation is just what it sounds like. It's uh, the big equipment that spins and makes electrons. Transmission 
transmits those electrons over long distances at high voltages, uh, and then it is stepped down and distributed uh, to communities at, at a level that uh, individual homes can ultimately take. When a transmission system goes down, all of the um, uh, all of the interconnected distribution systems can't turn their lights back on until that transmission system is back up and running. So what you had in uh, the case of, uh, of Hurricane Laura was a transmission system that I don't recall the exact statistics, but it was thousands of transmission structures. Now, those transmission structures, when they are um, destroyed it, or even when they're being built, it is a capital project. It is a construction project. This is not about restoration, uh, you know, sort of normal reset line, uh, reset poles, restring the line, get the power back on as quickly as possible. This was taking a devastated area in a hard to reach place, southern Louisiana, along the bayous. It was um, finding transmission structures that were inter that, that could be uh, used that were interchangeable in energy service territory could actually work uh, in that swampland. Uh, getting that equipment from uh, and material from the places where it was to these hard to reach areas, uh, and then having thousands of workers working around the clock to get the transmission system back up and running as quickly as possible, so that all of the distribution networks, all of those communities that were ready to receive power uh, could get the lights back on for their customers. Uh, this is something I cannot overstate uh, how much of a logistical effort it required. It had all the segments of the sector, not just EEI's members, but the co-ops and munis helping as well to work together with government support to get that material into theater, uh, get those workers working on those thousand plus transmission lines uh, and transmission structures, resetting them, restringing them, uh, and then uh, picking up all of those communities uh, that were dependent on that transmission. It was extraordinary. It happened in three weeks. We rebuilt the system of a, a transmission system in three weeks. Again, can't overstate how extraordinary that is. For all the workers that are, are brought into these sort of events to support restoration, can you talk a little bit about how they're they're allocated or, or how companies request help and if it's before a storm or after a storm kind of how that all plays out yeah so when a storm look there's there's two kinds of events right there's noticed events and no noticed events uh, a no notice event is like is going to be something like an earthquake you know you don't get any warning it happens and now we've got to re, uh, re either restore or rebuild infrastructure uh, hurricanes fortunately you know give us a bit of a warning we know when they're coming and generally where they're going and so the industry will get together 96 hours or, or more before a storm makes the impact, understand where it's likely to hit, understand what the nature of the damage is likely to be, and begin identifying uh, resources, begin identifying people and material and equipment that are going to be necessary. They'll then pre-stage those to the extent that it is safe to do so. The last thing you want to do is put people into uh, an area that is ultimately hit by the uh, storm. Uh, now there, you've got to keep them safe. You've got to keep them protected, and they may be out of the game uh, as far as uh, their ability to restore. So you keep them just outside of the impact area. Once the storm clears and it is safe to do so, now those crews go in and begin to assess the damage. 
So it's access the area, assess the damage, and then it's the business that I've been talking about, about starting to re reset pole, re uh, string lines, um, make uh, the area safe and ready uh, to, uh, to to get power back on, uh, and then turn the customers back on as quickly as possible. But it really is a, a, a military-like logistics movement where you've got crews from all over the country descending on an affected area, you wait for the storm to clear, you understand where your damage really is, you allocate the resources accordingly, uh, and with storms like Laura that then make their way up into Arkansas and then the Mid-Atlantic and have some impact up there, you, you make sure that you've got resources and crews that are ready to uh, restore in those areas as well. Um, it, uh, it, it is as much art as it is science, uh, but it comes with decades of experience and, and a lot of really smart people working very closely together uh, as an industry and with the government uh, to be able to do so. And is there one plan that they stick to, or are they kind of reallocating crews and moving crews along as the, the restoration progresses? Yeah, it's, it's always a moving target, right? Uh, you, know, you do your best to anticipate where the damage is going to be, but ultimately uh, you acknowledge that uh, damage can be different in different places. I, I can give you the example of, uh, of Tropical Storm Isaias. I recall that that one hit the mid-Atlantic uh, and um, didn't do a ton of damage in the mid-Atlantic. Once a storm makes landfall, we all breathe a sigh of relief. They're not supposed to get stronger from there. Isaias actually did something I've never seen a storm do, which is to strengthen a bit over land. And uh, some of its outer bands ultimately hit New England and, and really impacted uh, areas of uh, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts uh, in ways that weren't anticipated. So you always have to be kind of quick on your feet. Uh, once we saw that uh, the Mid-Atlantic uh, was not impacted uh, the way that we expected, those crews that were allocated to the Mid-Atlantic ultimately were moved up to the Northeast uh, to begin to do the work up there. Now we've seen uh, aerial drones becoming an increasingly important tool for crews responding to storm damage. What are some of the ways that crews are using drones out in the field? Yeah, drones are extraordinary tools uh, for both uh, blue sky and black sky. So when I say blue sky, it's you know day to day um, operations. It's it's inspecting lines. It is uh, doing uh, some maintenance and things like that. And, and drones have proven to be, it, it's doing uh, security sweeps and things like that. And drones have proven to be a really useful tool for that. Um, in uh, after an event happens, uh, drones can be incredibly valuable for doing damage assessment, uh, going to those hard to reach places, uh, flying through those areas like uh, the, uh, the the swamps of southern uh, Louisiana that I mentioned earlier, or the uh, uh, you know the Everglades uh, is someplace else that we've seen uh, drones be very useful. And then even in uh, wildfire situations where it's really dangerous to enter the impacted area to understand what uh, happened to the infrastructure in there, uh, the the value of drones is to go to places where people can't uh, to begin to do that damage assessment, so that when it is safe to enter that area, we've got the crews and equipment that we know we're going to need, uh, and we can be far more efficient with the restoration. That's great. So we've talked a little bit about the the people and the tools, but what sort of investments are electric companies making to enhance the resilience of the energy grid itself? And might this be a little different by region? Yeah, that, that's the most important point is it's absolutely going to be different by region. Uh, you know, I, just picking a couple of random examples, Florida, obviously hurricanes are your number one priority. You know you're going to be hit. Uh, out in the West, uh, we have seen the scourge of wildfires. We know that wildfires and earthquakes uh, are something we need to be preparing for. Other parts of the country, it might be winter storms or, or what have you. So it is definitely region specific. Um, what I would say is uh, the kinds of investments break down into a couple of different um, uh, categories. Uh, some of it is gonna be infrastructure hardening. Uh, things as simple as new poles, 
uh, stronger, uh, stronger structures and, and things like that. Um, others, uh, other kinds of, or other categories are things like um, the, uh, uh, what I call situational awareness. So sensor arrays, uh, things that allow us to know, uh, is this substation flooding? Uh, is this uh, an area uh, high, of high fire risk? Um, and then there's other uh, investments in operations and maintenance, really that kind of long-term, I'm going to be protecting this infrastructure against wildfires. What are the kinds of things I need to do to invest in uh, to monitor wildfires and to uh, maintain uh, the situational awareness? Uh, if I'm down in Florida, uh, it might be looking at all of my concrete poles uh, now that they are all concrete uh, and making sure that concrete is still structurally sound. Uh, and then there's creative things. I, I go back to Superstorm Sandy, uh, and uh, I think it's the 13th Street uh, substation that Con Edison operates. Uh, it had been protected to, oh, I think it was like a 12-foot storm surge, which was four feet higher than anything they'd seen before. And then Superstorm Sandy made a 16-foot storm surge. So rather than building to a 16-foot surge, uh, the folks at Con Ed were really smart. They now have these storm doors that a single person can close. So it's still it's still uh, a twelve it's still uh, uh, built to twelve feet of of storm hardening, but there's a there's a door there that somebody can now come in and close if they if they absolutely have to. It gives them an additional several feet of protection. Uh, so all of these really kind of creative investments uh, that different companies are doing in different regions to deal with the unique threats that they face. We've seen a lot of benefits from smart meters, as I understand it as well, just the information that gives crews to what's out and how that helps save time. I, I appreciate you mentioning that. Smart meters are a huge part of it. And, and in fact, they allow companies to actually restore power even without rolling trucks out in the field. They're restoring power while the storm is still happening. You have to remember, right, the grid is a grid of grids. So if there is a spot where power, a, a grid or a, a small area has, has gone down, but we can actually energize that area by taking power from someplace else, smart meters and smart infrastructure allow us to do that. So this digitization of the grid really does give us great situational awareness, and it gives us the ability to, uh, uh, to actually take action remotely, even while an incident is ongoing. So you mentioned this a little bit at the start, but in addition to responding and learning from real life events, what sort of exercises does the industry do to prepare? So there's two general flavors of exercise, right? There is a tabletop exercise where you effectively um, you sit at a table and or you know, these days virtually and talk through the different things and different considerations that we all need to have. Um, then there are functional exercises. And in fact, just last week, uh, EEI undertook its national response event functional exercise where uh, mutual assistance leads uh, security, or I'm sorry, storm bosses from around the industry all convened virtually to work through and actually functionally do the things that we would do to initiate a storm response, to allocate resources, uh, and, and to work collectively. And this goes back to all of the different organizations that are involved and not uh, exchanging business cards on the tarmac right after the incident happened. Exercises are terrific places to get to know your partners uh, and to learn lessons uh, with, uh, you know, with a net uh, when you are looking to uh, you know, do a storm response uh, in the real world, uh, you don't have the luxury of do-overs. And so exercises really do give us that safe space to uh, learn, some, uh, learn some lessons, uh, apply them to the next storm, and, and move on. 
And as we know, the weather can be wildly different in different parts of the country, or it, there, if there's an earthquake, it could be snowing somewhere else. So do we also, as an industry, work to make sure that we can handle more than one incident at once? We, we do. Uh, I, I think a lot of us like to, and a lot of uh, the folks in the industry are, are former military as well, you know, being able to fight the two mid-sized wars in two different theaters, right? Uh, the way that the industry has looked at mutual assistance and the limited resources of crews, right? There, there are only so many uh, people who are able to do this really technical, really dangerous work of uh, storm response and rebuilding and restoring power under duress. Uh, we need to use those people uh, really efficiently. So uh, we are able to uh, fight more than one fight at the same time. And as I talked about with the movement of crews, uh, you know, as storms move up uh, through, let's call it the eastern seaboard, uh, you will see the convoys of trucks following that storm up uh, and doing the work of restoring power as soon as it's safe to do so. So we've talked about how electric companies have been prepared for hurricane season, but preparedness really is a shared responsibility among all of us. So what are some important tips for customers to keep in mind for when a major storm hits? Yeah, I really appreciate you asking that, Brian. So first of all, be careful. I said, this is infrastructure that can kill you. Uh, just because a, a line is down does not necessarily mean it is de-energized. So stay away. If you see a down power line, call your local electric company. Uh, folks also use generators uh, after storms. Of course they do. use them safely. Never ever use them in the house uh, or, or in an enclosed area. Uh, when you're driving around after an incident, uh, be careful. Our crews are out there. Uh, please keep your distance for, for their safety and for yours. That's even more true during a pandemic. Uh, but but really, it is about uh, keeping the community safe and allowing your crews to do the work as quickly as possible so that we can get power back on as quickly as possible so that you can get back to your daily life as quickly as possible. And since the best time to prepare for emergency is really before one strikes, what steps can customers take now to prepare for the possibility of power outages? You know, this is something and you hear FEMA do it all the time and your local electric company does it too. Make a plan for you and your family. Don't wait for the storm to be 24 hours out. Don't wait for the storm to be 96 hours out. Think about it now. Uh, make that plan. Put together an emergency outage kit. If you've got pets, make sure you have everything you need for your pet. If you've got kids or people who might be sick, uh, make sure you've got any medications that you need. Uh, be able to be plan for and be able to be self-sufficient uh, for as long as you possibly can. We are all the first responders. Uh, and if you need to learn more, you can certainly go to eei.org or uh, ready.gov, uh, which is a great resource that uh, FEMA puts together uh, to help people understand how best to prepare for all manner of incidents. And one last question here. What might be the most surprising cause of outages that people might endure during any sort of year? Yeah, you know, everybody looks at cyber attacks and physical attacks and storms and, and wildfires. Those are things that happen all the time. Actually, the thing that happens the most, believe it or not, uh, is uh, wildlife uh, impact. Uh, it is the most uh, likely, although least consequential uh, incident. It, it is consequential to the squirrel uh, that may come in contact with the power line, but it is not consequential to the grid more broadly. So uh, while we all prepare for all manner of threats, cyber and physical, storm and wildfire, pandemics, you name it, uh, actually the grid is most impacted by wildlife. And that is uh, the scourge that uh, our companies deal with uh, on a daily basis. But fortunately, the listeners and most customers never have to worry about it. 
Great. Well, thank you for taking some time to join us this afternoon and share some tips for how we all can be better prepared for the hurricane season. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.